good to have each and every one here tonight, and I will tell you that as each and every month has passed by, our young people have performed so well this year at the Bible Bowl. It's not that we're in competition with other congregations, but the fact that our young people have done so well this year, and I think we need to encourage not only them, but their teachers who have been able to bring out the best in them. And I think only eternity will reveal how great this is for our young people and how much they learn and how well this prepares them for their spiritual future. This evening, I'd like you to keep your Bibles open there to the book of Exodus, to chapter 3. We're going to study a lesson from that section. You know, some of the Old Testament events, though the Old Testament is not binding upon us today, does have some great lessons within it. For instance, as a child, one of the first lessons I remember is that of Adam and Eve, that of Noah, that of Abraham, that of Joseph and his colors, coat. And uh, then I remember about the Exodus, being taught that as a little child. And you know, as you and I study through the Old Testament, we shouldn't look at it and say, well, I'm not bound by those sacrifices, and so all I'm going to do is study the New Testament. We do have some folks who believe that's all you ought to do is just look at the New Testament. But I think they're missing a great amount of wonderful material by not studying those lessons. Moses, in this occasion, received directions. He received instructions from a burning bush, which in reality were messages from God. And tonight I want us to concentrate on that and to ask, are there some applications that we should make? Anyone, anytime they're studying Scripture, should always ask, does this passage teach me anything? I hope that you are a daily Bible reader. If you are not, I want to encourage you to start. I want to encourage you to take a chapter. Even if you don't have the time, take a half a chapter. Read those sections and then ask the question, does this passage have any application to what I say or what I do? What can I learn from it? Well, tonight what we're going to do is look at three things because of what was said to Moses from that burning bush. We're going to notice, first of all, that he was taught to learn respect. Then he was taught that there would be a rescue and relief. And then finally, we have a reply to the excuses that Moses offered. And I think there's a valuable lesson for us in trying to make sure that the excuses we offer are not the same kind that Moses did. Let's look, first of all, at this idea of respect. The very first thing that you will find in verses 4 through 6 is that Moses is told to take off his sandals because he is on holy ground. Notice with me verses 4 through 6. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said to him, or Do not draw near this place. Take off the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. 
Now, when you have man in the presence of God, that demands in and of, of itself respect. You need to understand that whenever man came in God's presence, God is so powerful, so mighty, so important, he deserves man showing him some respect. Let me give you an illustration or two from the Old Testament. If you'll remember the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests and serving before God. And when they were serving before God on this day, we read that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. So before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. You see what God's message was regarding this event? Here are Aaron's two sons. They have died. Don't you know that Aaron was grieved at his heart? But God's message to Aaron through Moses was, is I must be regarded as holy. This is not just any ordinary place. This is a place where you come together to worship God. And I must be glorified before people. You just can't do anything in worship and it be acceptable. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through verse 28, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to get man to understand the awesome nature of God. And he's going to use an illustration of how the children of Israel stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And you come down, I just want to draw attention to these verses. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and that blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that it should not be spoken to them any more, For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of, and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we, escape, if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Yet this once more indicates the removal of all things that are being shaken, as of the things that remain which cannot be shaken, or which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace 
by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You see, what he's trying to do is get them to look back to that Old Testament Mount Sinai that shook the voices that caused the people to tremble. They were so afraid. And he says, but God still speaks from heaven. And of course, you're studying the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, he's going to speak through his son. But he said, you've got to understand, when we approach God, we have to approach him with this reverence and godly fear. David put it very succinctly, very plainly in Psalm 89.7. God is to be greatly feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. There is no way tonight that I could overemphasize how respectful we ought to be in the very presence of God. Now let's make some application here. It teaches us that we need to respect God as well. We tend to think because God manifested himself by means of the burning bush that that was an isolated instance of God's appearance here on earth. But the reality is, is God is here now. God is everywhere, but he is specifically with us observing the worship which we are offering. And we are either exhibiting that reverence that is due to him, or we are showing disrespect. We are in the presence of God in worship. Just a few moments ago, we sang some songs that were very precious, very important. We bowed our heads in prayer. We read God's word together. And you know, brethren, God looked at our hearts. And he knows what we were doing. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 1, Solomon said, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. He says, when you go, you need to walk prudently into the house of the Lord. Think about what you are doing. I've heard people say, we just got to quit having boring sermons. We've got to ha- quit having drab worship services. Let me tell you, folks, anytime we respect God in our worship, it should not be boring. And a lot of it has to do with the preparation of our minds and of our hearts to be able to listen to and to receive and to absorb the Word of God and the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray. Perhaps rather than blaming those who lead us, we ought to be looking back and saying, am I gathering something from it myself? We should respect God, reverence God in what we say and what we do. In the book of Malachi, the children of Israel have returned from Babylonian captivity. And after they returned, God had a message to them by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. You need to rebuild the temple. You need to build the place where you will come to worship. They did. Had to be urged to do that. When you get to the book of Malachi, though, they had built the building, but their hearts still were not in it. 
Malachi chapter 1, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, your father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar. But you can say, what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? Or when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? You see, these people had gathered together and they were giving God their scraps. And these people here were not giving God honor. When you and I gather together to worship God, we ought to be as reverential as we possibly can. What would you do tonight if right when it came time to start the service, our Lord Jesus Christ had came in and said, I'm going to sit down right next to you. Would you sit up and hold your songbook and sing? When the scripture was announced, would you turn to that part of the Bible and let the Lord see you reading his word? When the preaching is going on, would you have sat there and said, oh, I think I'm going to write me a note here, pass notes? You see, our idea is as if the Lord's not somehow aware of what we're doing. Perhaps Nadab and Abihu didn't think he was watching them either. Moses, the place where you are standing is holy ground. What we're doing here is holy and should be respectful. Number two, or next, we should reverence his name. That is, when we use God's name, it should be with the greatest amount of respect. Exodus 20 and verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Sometimes we think that's only cursing. That is a violation of this passage. But vain means to no profit and to no use. When we use the Lord's name without any respect, we dishonor him. Second thing that you will notice that comes from the directions of the burning bush was that of rescue and relief. God had heard the cry of those oppressed and had provided a means of deliverance. Notice with me now verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a, from that land to a good and a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, dropping down to verse 9. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me, and I have seen, also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses, I have seen, I have heard my, the cry of my people. I know their sorrows. I know what they're going through. And I'm going to provide deliverance for them. 
When David in Psalm 34, 6 and 7, he says, The poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. You see, God is able to hear the cry of anybody who is in trouble, but the cry that he listens to are those of his children. You know, I don't want to see any child in distress, but the one that really, really captures my attention is my child. And God's children are heard by him. Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9 I will mention of the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all the Lord has bestowed upon us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed upon them according to the mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their Savior. Do you see the picture that Isaiah is trying to portray for us? God really loves his people, cares for them. I think about New Testament times as well. When John wrote the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos, the church was undergoing a real tough time. The Roman Empire was cracking down on Christianity. People were dying. People were being killed because they were Christians. There's a picture in the opening of the seal in Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are Christians who have been faithful. And they are pictured as being under the altar. And it says in verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, and do you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to them, each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both their number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed, as it were, were completed. God said, give me just a little bit more time. Let's bring all this to completion. And then when that happens, I will deliver. And he did. Roman Empire is gone today and God's people remain. Well, see, when you and I start applying that ourselves, we have to realize God has looked down and he has seen the plight of man. The great plight of man is not the Egyptian bondage, nor was it the Babylonian captivity, nor was it that of the Roman government. The great plight of man is sin. And God sees that we need a deliverer. We need out of that bondage. When Peter and the other apostles preached in Acts chapter 2, they tried to explain that God had a plan involved. And it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? There are people once convinced of their sins will cry out and say, God, I need a deliverer. I need someone to help me. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son in this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
the primary mission of Jesus, Luke 19.10, is to seek and to save the lost. He is that deliverer. He is that Savior. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, though, takes it further. You know, as long as we're in this physical body, you and I are all going to be subjected to kinds of suffering and sorrows and pain. And listen to Paul, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. You see, what we're really looking for is deliverance, as Paul would say, from this body of sin to the time when we get to enjoy eternity together. 2 Peter 2, 4-9 through 9. He says that God does deliver. He didn't. Verse 5, he says the ancient world, he saved Noah. You drop down to verse 6, and he says he condemned cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says in verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot from the filthy conduct of the wicked. And then he sort of summarizes it like this. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He's saying is, is that you and I, as we cry out for deliverance, God knows how to take care of us. God speaks to Moses from that burning bush. And he says, I've heard the cry of my people, Moses, and I'm going to deliver them. And God hears our cry. And God still delivers today. The third thing that you will notice out of this section is found in verses 11 through 14. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he says, I will certainly be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The I am has sent me to you. You see, as you look at this section and that which follows, God addresses Moses' objections, his excuses, one by one. Who am I? Verse 11. I'm just a nobody. I'm out here tending the flock of my father-in-law Jethro. God, who am I? What shall I say? Verse 13. What am I going to tell them? Verse 1 of chapter 4, what if they don't believe me? Suppose I go and I say to them, and they're not going to believe me. Chapter 4, verse 10, I am of a slow speech and of a stammering tongue or slow of tongue. God, I'm not even really a good, very good speaker. How can I do this job? And he comes down to chapter 4, verse 13, and basically he says, Lord, please send somebody else. Don't send me. And God answered each and every one of these excuses. Now, 
men often make excuses when they don't want to do something. Somebody comes to you and says, uh, we need you to help do this job. And you say, I can't do that. i got something else I need to be doing. Get somebody else to do that job. Why don't we do that? We don't want to do it. Just listen to Luke chapter 14. I, don't, I can't look at verses 16 through 24. Just let me pull out of there a couple of verses. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and he sent his servant at the supper time to those who were invited. Come, for all things are ready. But they, all with one accord, began to make excuses. I want you to come to my face. Well, I'm sorry, I can't come. I've got this to do. I pray you have me excused. I bought a piece of ground. I need to go check it out. How many times have we raised excuses? I can't do this. I can't do that. When God, you know, can answer every one of those excuses. Isaiah 29, 11. And he talks about... I think the way he puts it here is, is real interesting. The whole vision has come to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I, I cannot. I am not literate. I can't read. Verse 13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as this people draw near to me with their mouths, honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. He's saying that you give somebody a chance, and they say, Well, I can't do it. You give it to another person, they give them a chance. No, I can't do it. These people don't want to do it. They close the Lord off in their lives. What if Moses had finally rejected and said, Lord, I'm not going? Perhaps he would have been like Jonah and the Lord would have had to taught him a lesson. But the truth is the Lord knows our excuses. No one of us have a legitimate excuse for disobeying God. Someone might say, but I don't know. I don't have enough evidence to prove there's even a God. Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. None of us can say, I don't know. God's provided that. John 15.22, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And you can say, Well, I don't know. All of what God has told me. Well, you can know. You've got a Bible. Will God judge us for what's in that book? Most certainly. Absolutely. There's many lessons that could be drawn from the directions given by God through this burning bush. I really have just only scratched the surface of some of them. We could have spent a lot more time on those excuses. The primary lesson that God was going to deliver his people and Moses had a part in that plan and God wanted Moses to fulfill it and to, to do what needed to be done. And the question is, will we learn from these directions ourselves? If you'll get your songbook out now, we're going to sing this invitation song.
the purpose of which is to encourage you. We're all singing together. We're trying to urge people to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on Him, to repent of their sins, confess their faith, and be baptized. What a grand privilege tonight would be to witness one or more obey the gospel by becoming New Testament Christians. It is also an opportunity for those of us who are Christians to just say, I'm sorry. I've made mistakes. I need to make corrections in my life. If that's who you are, we want to urge you tonight. We can pray together. And God has assured us that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears. Would you come as we stand and sing?